realize the first mistake. We have no clock in here. And by mistake, I say a mistake for you, not for me. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're not going to be in Matthew this week. I know it takes a substantial thing for me to alter the text I'm going to preach. I've done it anyways. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And I would remind you, God wrote this a long time ago, but when he wrote it, he had the original audience in mind, but he had you in mind, even this day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, you have spoken in the reading of your word now. O Lord, would you speak in its preaching We acknowledge our limitations. Our minds are dull. Our hearts are hard. Our bodies are weary. For many of us, our excitement is high. Would your spirit be pleased to give faith? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's been a long time trying to figure out how to start the sermon. Been working on the sermon really for about a month. Never actually figured out an introduction. How do you sum up 26 years of waiting for a building in an introduction? I mean, you realize this church was started and and longing for a building before Austin was born. How do you sum up the history this church has had? How do you sum up the Lord's faithfulness, giving a a testimony to His kindness to this church? How, How do you sum it up in an intro? You can't. I can't speak to the years before I was here. I can speak to the one since I've started, but 12 years and 9 months ago. Walking into that building, being overwhelmed that we had a place we could call our own. It was temporary, we knew that. Weren't sure how we were going to pay for it. A couple of weeks later, walk into my first session meeting and I remember one of the elders saying, well, I sure hope you can preach yourself into a salary. 
Because we've got enough money for about six months. <laughs> Wish I had known that maybe a couple of months ago. How do you sum up your second Sunday in the church after you preach? You're walking out talking with the people and one of the ladies in the church says, I don't know why you took this church, it's cursed. <laughs> Again, things that would have been helpful to know maybe eight to ten weeks prior. How do you sum up watching the Lord work? How do you sum up watching people come to know Jesus? That moment where it clicks in their head and they understand, oh, it's totally different. How do you sum up the tears cried in my office? Working through the sorrows that have come because of the consequences of sin. Maybe not the person crying, but just the nature of sin. And the Lord working. You can't. It's impossible to sum it up. I've tried. I've, I've spent hours thinking about how to do it. You can't. You can't sum up all that God has done. But it's really special. That he's given us this building to help with that. That you want to see and marvel at God's activity in this church. You want to see and marvel at how he's changing hearts and changing lives and healing families and bringing people to life from death. This is a pretty good reminder. I'm not a gambling man, but if I were, I certainly wouldn't have bet on this church when I first took it. I mean, there's no reason to believe that this church would do anything but die. It was one of the first conversations that Dick and I had about this church. He said, will your confidence be able to handle you coming in this church closing? Because if it can't, you shouldn't pastor here. Because humanly speaking, I would never bet on this church. Why would we have ever done that? Well, the answer is obvious. We don't bet on the church. We bet on the king of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this is his story. That out of kindness and out of mercy and out of generosity and out of his mere good pleasure and a million other reasons I will never understand, he's chosen to bless this church. To pour out kindness after kindness after kindness after kindness after kindness. I talk about you often behind your back. I say I'm blessed to pastor the best church in the country. In spite of her pastor, she is beautiful and lovely and marvelous. And praise God, we have a building that matches. A building that captures the things it's supposed to capture. Simplicity on its surface, but beautiful in song. Beautiful in prayer. Beautiful in the body interacting together. How do you sum up <laughs> the ministry of the church?
looking at, we're talking about it this week. I think this day is a day I probably think about. I've thought about every month of my entire ministry since I started. I really don't think there's been a month that has gone by that I have not contemplated this day. I mean, the emotional loading that has happened in my heart well before I walked in the building this morning. Twelve years and nine months of it. And I'll be honest, there were seasons of ministry where I wondered if it would ever happen. Would the Lord ever provide? Would we have that marvelous building over there? And it's been marvelous. And then COVID. And then the trusses. And then Martin almost dying in the parking lot. And so many things. And you you wonder. And I would say that in the story of this sweet portion of the body of Christ, and praise God, we're not the only church. We're a tiny portion of the big church. But as the story of this portion of the church goes, this is one of the great victories of this church. I mean, it's here. (laughs) I found myself all week going, I I just can't believe it's actually happening. I mean, I'll remember for the rest of my life, Scott Tuttle, after getting the CO, coming in and collapsing on the floor and doing snow angels about six feet from where he's sitting, of just pure joy. And so... uh, Appropriate that as we contemplate God's mercy and we contemplate God's kindness and we contemplate God's generosity and we contemplate how the Lord has blessed this portion of the church so, so, so richly, it is imperative that we think about what does the Bible say for days like today? What does the Bible say about the days of great victory, the grace, the days of great rejoicing, the days where you could kind of stick a flag in it and mark, this is the day everything was different? What do we do now? <laughs> well, Acts 2.42. Acts chapter 2 is a day much like today in the early church. You remember in the early church... Uh, much of the church was a mess. You think when Jesus, you know, dies and is resurrected, he's left the church really in the hands of 11 guys that we wouldn't really have been excited about. I mean, their track record's not exactly great. I mean, the, the emotional leader of them all betrayed Jesus just a matter of days prior, and you would think, really, these are the ones... Probably less than... 500 Christians in the entire world at this point. And as the book of Acts begins, Jesus ascends to heaven and you think, oh my goodness, really? You you just came back from the grave, now you're going to go again? And he gives them the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, we forget kind of the size and scope of what happens. In chapter 2, Peter begins preaching. Peter, the mess. Peter, the, the traitor. Peter, the... He's a mess. He begins preaching. He preaches the Old Testament. He preaches it with power. Even maybe perhaps not in the most um, indirect of sermons. 
Verse 23 of chapter 2, he even acknowledges that the people who killed Jesus are the people he's preaching to. He doesn't even go with that kind of generic option of, hey, somebody killed Jesus. He's literally looking at people being like, hey, you killed Jesus, and you killed Jesus, and you killed Jesus. That's a bold rhetorical move, buddy. Until verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. To put that in perspective, in one sermon by Peter, we see more conversions than the entire ministry of Jesus combined. That is a shocking reality. That the Lord of glory incarnate in human nature, living among people, his entire ministry. You see, best guess, five to six hundred people converted. Here in one sermon, we see three thousand converted. And you would think, this is the turning point in the early church. This is the moment we can stick a flag in it. You can mark it in the history books. This is where everything was different. This is the great victory of the church. Suddenly a couple of hundred people who were an absolute mess are turned into thousands. And these thousands are taken all over the world and they become tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in just a matter of years. It's the great victory of the early church. Inappropriate for us to look at and say, okay, so what do they do? They've just had the great turning point. They get to see God's blessing poured out. They get to see everything's changed in the church. God's richness and kindness is showcased to them. What do they do afterward? What should we do afterward? Well, first, you get the key verb here, they devoted themselves. We're going to do a little bit of kind of grammar work here. It's the dominant verb that shapes the rest of the passage. They manifest, they actively work toward, they labor at creating and increasing and maintaining devotion. A heart that is committed to the Lord, a heart that is attuned to Him, that is eager to serve Him, that's eager to know Him, a heart that is warm toward their God. And I'll be honest, you can easily see why this would be such an important thing to consider because it would be very easy for us to be excited today and have this room filled today and have our songs be beautiful and, and marvelous and then in just a matter of weeks to have the excitement kind of wane a little bit. You can imagine how easy it would be for us to kind of perhaps maybe get a little irritated with each other. A little bit. You could see how it would easily become a thing where the newness wears off. And certainly our culture has trained us to think of that, right? We're always looking for some new fix, some new thing to make us interested and captivated. Something new, something new, something new, something new. And it's intriguing. The early church understood in some fashion, look, we have to fight for devotion. The heart that's warm toward the Lord, that knows the Lord and delights in Him, is something that's not easily cultivated. The devil hates it. The world hates it. Even your flesh hates it. 
mean, you know this, you know it experientially. Anytime you've been for a season without reading your Bible and you start reading your Bible again and you're like, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. How's that week going to go? You know the answer. Terrible. Because the world and the flesh and the devil are going to do everything. They can to disrupt, to to create a a condition that is hard to maintain any sort of warmth. The early church, rather than reveling in their victory, see, you know, that's the other thing we could do. Right? I could have stood up here and preached a sermon on giving, getting ready for phases two and three, and won't you be excited? No. No. Let's use the kindness that God has given to cultivate hearts that are obedient to Him. Cultivate hearts that are warm toward Him. Cultivate hearts that delight in Him. And that is something that has to be worked at. Now the interesting thing you would say is, well, how do I do that? How is it that I maintain a heart that's warm toward God? How is it that I would maintain what the ancient church called piety? A delight in God and an obedience and submission to Him. How how do I cultivate this spiritual condition? Because my heart is so prone to growing cold so easily. How do I cultivate a delight like this? Well, interestingly, Luke here gives us a pretty clear explanation. Grammatically, he says they devoted themselves. Now, interestingly, he doesn't say they devoted themselves to God. It's implied. It's the implied kind of object here. But they devoted themselves to certain activities that would enable them to know that God. The the means, the mechanisms whereby their hearts would be changed. First, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And you would say, well, okay, that's good. What is the apostles' teaching? Well, it's what Peter's just proclaimed. They devoted themselves to what we would call the gospel. They devoted themselves to the good news. It's what the content of Peter's sermon is. Saying, look, this is the reality is that all people, all men and women, boys and girls are born sinful. Any parent knows that, right? They're little ones, the evil they devise. You're like, I didn't teach you that. How did you think of that? Right? You have those moments between spouses where you're like, honestly, I wanted to applaud their creativity because wow, but that was just so naughty. Adults are no different. Maybe a bit more sophisticated. I don't know. Grandparents, do you do that to your adult kids where you're like, man, I'm just mystified at their evil still. Don't answer that. But in verse 38, he's laid it out for them. You have uh, are sinners in need of a Savior. You're sinners who need a God to change your life. You need your heart to be redeemed. You need a help that you cannot provide. And the only answer to that is Jesus Christ, the living and true God who stepped inside time and space, who put on humanity, who went to the cross and offered to change places there. I'll take all the bad stuff you ever did. He takes it on the cross. 
All the good stuff he's ever done, he gave it to us on the cross. The great exchange. Now it's interesting. The early church understood that this is the message that we have to be devoted to. It's not a devotion to how we should maintain this building. It's not a devotion to what programs we increase in the future or don't increase. It's not a devotion to where we place the piano and how we mic it. It's not a devotion to whether or not I have to wear the goofy microphone or the lapel like I've worn for the last decade. They devote themselves to the big picture. And we say it today in our current culture of we major on the majors and minor on the minors. The drum the early church beat, the message the early church captured was first and foremost the gospel. And the interesting thing is, as you read through the book of Acts and then continue into early church life, it cost them their life. They died for that message. And you can see how, right, Peter? This Jesus who was crucified, by the way, you're the ones who did it. You're the ones in need of a Savior. You're the ones who stand accused. You're the ones that are guilty. You can see how some people might not like that. In verse 38, you get their response. What do we do? How can I be saved? How can I be changed? How do I get out from under this judgment of God? How do I have my sin corrected? How may I exist in holiness and rightness? How do I get this problem fixed? Well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the message they were devoted to. Because friends, that showcases for us the heart of our God. What does the triune God think about you as a person? Well, it depends on where you are in that story. If it's born under sin, guess what? He thinks of you as a sinner and as an object of wrath. If you've come into Jesus and you belong to him, he thinks of you as his redeemed child, his beloved and precious child that he was willing to give his son for. And that changes everything. And again, I'm going to be honest, this is not something that we're particularly skilled to deal with. And I'll tell you why. Traditionally, if you study history, not just church history, but world history, the more money a culture has, the more they get to focus on small and trivial and foolish things. I mean, you can look at our culture. We're the richest people in human history. And if you watch the news prior to this week, it's been filled with the smallest, most trivial, most foolish things humanity has ever been preoccupied with. Never before have people, a culture, been so occupied with so many stupid things. Why? Well, because we're rich. I mean, when you're starving to death, you don't waste time debating silly things. 
Right? When you're starving to death, Twitter kind of loses its appeal. You're not Instagramming your plates of food when you don't have a plate of food. It adds a sense of kind of scale to things. And I'll be honest, there is a danger for us as a church here, as a portion of the Lord's church living in the richest culture in human history. There is a danger that we as a people here could be occupied and preoccupied with the small things instead of the big thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation is freely given. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were laboring at that so that their hearts would continue to be warm and grow in delight in God. Now, if we were writing this, my footstool is shifting here. Here we go. If we were writing this, we probably wouldn't expect the next part that comes in the passage. We would say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, if we're in this church, the singing. They love to sing. Maybe some of us being extra spiritual, we'd say, well, they devoted themselves to the prayer. Well, that's going to happen in a moment. Interestingly, though, he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, and it has the definite article here, to the fellowship. Highlighting that this was a unique and special feature of the early church that they actively devoted themselves to the practice of fellowship. Now this word fellowship is how our English Bible translates it, but in the Greek it had a lot fuller meaning than just fellowship. Uh, Other ways that it's translated in the scripture, uh, one is a deposit. Like if you had to go to the bank and make a deposit, that's the word that you would use here would be the fellowship, the koinonia. Or if you were talking about the unity of people, when you would say they were like-minded, you could even use that word here, the the koinonia of the saints, the like-mindedness of the saints. Interestingly, in ancient Greek, and not just biblical Greek, but in ancient Greek of this time, it was the word that was used to refer to marital intimacy, we might say. Interestingly here, when he's talking that Luke is using this word, and remember, Luke has a medical background, he knows what he's talking about. When he's using this word, he's not using to say that, oh, look, they kind of, you know, tolerated each other. They devoted themselves to the Bible, and they kind of sometimes were in the same room. They were good roommates. Now, interestingly, what does the church do as part of this cultivating a warmth for our God of of knowing the triune God is they're devoting themselves to the scriptures, to the teaching, the apostolic teaching, but they're actively devoting themselves to the unity of the church, cultivating. And again, I don't just mean superficial contacts. Not just, oh, I recognize that person. I know their name. They actively worked to cultivate cultivate emotional and spiritual intimacy with one another. I'll let you in on a little secret from the session. When we had the conversations to originally go to two services, this was the biggest point of concern in our debate. 
We acknowledged we were having problems fitting everybody in the same room, and until we got a bigger room, it was going to be an issue. And we were very bothered by the idea that we might lose the fellowship. And you know what? In some way, we have. Because if you pause for a moment, and if you were to look around in here, think about how many of these faces you don't know their names to. I mean, I'm the, I'm the pastor. There's at least one person in here I don't know their name. Man, I know most of them. Everybody's like, am I the one? <laughs> no, I know your name. Yeah. But think of how, how many people in here you don't even know their names. Much less know the spiritual nature of their hearts and how they're laboring in their walk and what's causing them difficulty and what causes them sorrow and what's giving them joy and who they are as a person. You know, and this is where the American culture and the American experiment has lied to us. We've been told the lie that we can exist by ourselves and be just fine. That I'm a strong, independent man, or you're a strong, independent woman, or whatever you are. That I can do it by myself, that I can make it. It's been one of the great gifts of 2020. COVID has shown us. <laughs> That's a lie. It doesn't work. Nobody can do this. We get trapped in our homes for just a matter of weeks, and people are like, I'm losing it. I can't do this. I'm trapped in my own thoughts, and they're terrible. The person who lives in my head, I don't like them sometimes. I would even be a touch more spiritual with this and even make the point that you need to understand that just as the Lord has given you the scriptures in order to know him and love him, he's given you the people in this room to know him. And to love him. Most of us do not think of the church in that category, do we? Thinking of the church as, as being the augment to the scriptures. It's interesting because most of us just aren't Calvinists in that regard. Calvin is famous for saying, if God is our father, the church is our mother. And as Protestants, we automatically get the hairs on the back of our neck standing up and like, ah, it sounds Roman Catholic. No, it sounds biblical where we're designed to be a part of God's people. We're designed to exist in unity, to exist in fellowship. You need people to get in your face and to offend you and to forgive you and to work with you and to change you. I even go one step further. Please read your Bible in private. It's even more important that you read it in public with these people. It's really important that you pray in private. It's more important that you pray in public with these people. The Lord has placed these people, these people in this room, in your life, so you will grow. Do not squander that resource. You realize that for, for those of us that neglect the people in this room, what it is effectively doing is next Sunday when we show up for worship, we go back to that building. And we say, hey, I know I like that nice new building you have up front. We're just not going to use it. Why? Ah, I like the old way. I can do it just fine by myself. I'm good. It's all right. 
Like, no, this is God's gift. Again, intriguing that the idea being presented here is to cultivate an intimacy that is so unified that the words of, of just marriage could be used. Devote themselves to the teaching. Devote themselves to the fellowship. Devote themselves to the breaking of bread. It's the design of the building here. We have both sacraments present every Sunday, at least in form of a kind. Baptismal font here, the table here. Both of them being designed, interestingly, not as individual activities. Can you have communion by yourself? No. Common union. You have to have other people with you to do it. The Lord has designed these sacraments to be mechanisms, to be means whereby we know Him. Whereby He strengthens us. Whereby His Spirit works within us. Whereby our obedience is increased. Our knowledge is increased. Our love is increased. And our obedience and submission are uh, are practiced and put into practice. Devoting ourselves to the sacraments that God has given. And lastly, devoting ourselves to the prayers. It's not devoting ourselves to prayer. That's important, actually. All of these have the definite article. It's to the prayers. It's to the corporate prayers of the body. And it's an intriguing thing because in the American church, that's one thing that perhaps struggles more than any other, is the idea of corporate prayer. We don't like to do it. Namely, because we don't like to listen, we like to talk. And in order to pray, I have to listen to you. And I don't like doing that. Being silly, obviously. There's a reason, though, that corporate prayer is so important because it stretches our minds and it changes our hearts. And it's why we have our elders pray and not just me every time. I'm, I'm benefited and I'm blessed as I hear them think through and pray through the scriptures and let my heart try to submit to their requests even and to align my will to what they're asking from the scriptures of our God and to do it together. If I were going to be an honest pastor in regards to what I think the Lord has used to keep this church open and to bless this church and to build this building, I would tell you first and foremost, this has been a church that prayed. That's how it was started. For those that don't know, it came out of a prayer meeting connected to PTL of all things. But a body that's prayed. A body that, even when it was at its tiniest form, had a prayer meeting that was still robust and active. It was very small. But active. We're going to be honest with you. I want this church to continue to thrive for many generations, well after I'm dead. We need to be a people of the prayers. Not just private prayer. Please continue to pray privately. Please do not hear me say don't pray privately. But a body that prays together.
The interesting thing is what happens from this. The church has this landmark victory. 3,000 people converted. It's amazing. More in one sermon than in, as best we can tell, the entire ministry of Jesus. The whole church has exploded. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, effectively, every Christian that existed at that point was then in charge of having to disciple six people if you actually did the math. Like, doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, three weeks? Hey, you got six people that are now yours if you're going to just divvy them up evenly. This devotion to the means of grace, this devotion to these mechanisms whereby we know God, uh, amazing things happen. 43, all came upon every soul. I'm going to tell you right now, that is the kind of church that I want to pastor. The kind of church that when we walk into this place and we see our God in the scriptures that we have our minds melted by his beauty and his glory. I mean, I enjoy the social aspect of this church, but not that we wouldn't come into this room looking for that. But that we would in intimacy together marvel at our God. At his mercy at His goodness, at His grace, at His generosity, at placing us all together to serve Him, that we would be overwhelmed. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. These wonders and signs, they're given special miracles so that they can confirm their ministry. They're given special gifts and special miracles so that you would believe that, oh, they know what they're talking about because these are the guys writing the New Testament and they have the miraculous deeds to prove it. Well, the New Testament's written. We don't have any more new books of the Bible. We don't have these miracles taking place in this way anymore. But we still have them. How many times have we seen just in the history of this church children that should be dead make it out of the womb because God answered prayer? How many times In this church have we seen people who were lost be found. Those are no less of miracles. A church that historically, again, if you were a betting person, you would say there's no way this body exists. Not today. And the Lord is blessed. You see, they had miraculous signs given so that they could confirm the scriptures that were being written. We have miraculous signs given in a different way as our prayers are answered in strengthening our faith. For we know our God does amazing things. To watch people as they struggle with sin slowly gain victory. Things that they struggled with a decade ago, maybe don't struggle with quite as much today. No less miraculous. Paying for a building like this. Verses 44 and 45, it it marks a substantial change in how they view themselves. And I think this is, again, one of those areas that is going to be increasingly difficult for Americans 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as all, as, uh, to all as any had need. They began to think of themselves and their identity corporately, not individually. They began to think about their wants and their needs corporately, not individually. Now, you should know that this has been a concern of mine. I've only been using it as sermon application for the last nine months in preparation for today in acknowledging that this will be the great challenge of a new building. There might be some things in here you don't like. Shock. That's okay. You don't have to like them. I'm not mad at that. You might not like light-colored wood. You might like dark wood. Okay, it's fine. The challenge, though, is that as we cultivate this warm-hearted devotion to our God, as we practice these four means of grace and growing together with our God, it should, Lord willing, work in our minds so that we begin to redefine our identity as a corporate body more than an individual body. So that my desires come secondary to the desires of the body. So that my needs come secondary to the needs of the body. So that my wants come secondary to the needs of the body so that the body as a whole gets a trump over my individual preferences. And friends, I will tell you right now, that is perhaps the least American thing I've said today. And you think, oh no, I don't don't disagree with that at all. That usually means that you agree with me about whatever else we're talking about. But the second you disagree with me about that thing, then you'll disagree with me about this thing. We do not, as Americans, excel at thinking about our neighbor. I mean, we think about how they keep their yard messy. Or we think about that hateful thing that they said like 12 and a half months ago when their blood sugar was low and they were a little bit hangry. But oh man, we think about it. We think about that one time they looked really dumb when they did that thing. But we don't think about how can I make their life better? How can I improve their world? How can I minister to them and encourage them? How can I lift their spirits? How can I think about the group before I think about the individual? I would humbly extend that challenge to us. Please prove me wrong. When I say this will be a struggle for us because we're selfish creatures and we're Americans that have been taught individualism, it's, it's so much in the water, we're not even aware of it. I'm humbly saying, please prove me wrong by the Spirit of God. Well, what's the byproduct of all of this? Right, You have their devotion to the four means of grace. It produces all sorts of miracles and amazing things, a spirit of unity. It changes who they are and how they are. And I think verses 46 and 47 are the kind of church that every person in their right mind would want. Day by day, what do they do? Well, 
They go to worship together. That's what they had in the temple. They do that together. They break bread in their homes. This now not being communion, it means that they literally eat together. Like when they have chance, they like to be together in their lives. They share food as often as they can. They Let's go get a meal together. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, giving thanks to the Lord for it. They praise God together. They have favor with all sorts of people. Why would you not like these sorts of people? They're caring for you, not hating you. Of course you would love them. And the Lord adds to their number. Day by day, those who are saved. I trust that God is at work in this church. I have every reason to believe it. I see it with my eyes around me. I know it experientially. I've watched it happen in the last almost 13 years. May it be that together, by God's power, as we take the gospel forward, maybe this is just the beginning, just the start of the glory we will see in this place. He's already told us how. It's not in prepping for the next building phase. It's not, you know, being overly uh, awed at this building phase even. What is it? It's about being devoted to our God through his means of grace and then devoted to the church. May it be this is just the beginning for God's glory and for the good of his church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we acknowledge we deserve none of the kindnesses you have given. We do not deserve your word. We do not deserve your people. Would you please forgive us? And, oh, Lord, even as we are filled with such joy over this building, would we be filled with similar joy over the people in this building? And rejoice in your kindness. For Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing 358.